Uh, welcome everybody to this podcast, Science and Society, where we're talking about all things COVID. I'm Anton Posniak, a physician from London in the UK, and it's with great pleasure today that I'm going to speak with Monica Gandhi, who's a professor of infectious disease in California, in San Francisco, actually. And I worked with Monica on the AIDS conference uh, uh, just over a year ago. And today we're going to talk about timing schedules the intervals between COVID vaccines and also mixing and matching and other things. So it's a great pleasure. I'm going to hand over to you, Monica, to say a few words about yourself and what you've been doing in COVID. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you. So nice to see you again and be here. Um, So yes, I am an infectious disease doctor and you and I both work a lot on HIV, but um, had to turn my attention and, and many of us did to COVID. And I've been very interested in the COVID vaccines, in trying to understand deeply uh, the research around them and and help advise people on what's going on with the COVID vaccine. So that's what I've been doing over the last uh, uh, 10 months or so. Well, thanks for that. So we're going to dive in deep now. And uh, look, Monica, uh, it's really confusing about the intervals between vaccines. We had this in the UK, the first vaccine we really got widespread was AstraZeneca, where the data suggested that if you had a longer gap, two to three months, you had a better immune response. But meanwhile, in the health sector, we were getting the Pfizer-BioNTech, where we were getting these vaccines spaced three weeks apart because the data suggested there was a lot of protection uh, if you did it this way. So <laughs> we then had a mess in a way and in, in terms of the, the government saying not going from three months down to two months for the AstraZeneca. So suddenly we went from three months to two months for one of the vaccines and the other one stayed at three weeks and sometimes went up to two months. What should we do? What's the spacing? Is there a difference between the mRNAs and the the virus vector vaccines? What's your opinion on this? Yes, I mean, I totally agree. It's been really interesting to watch this. So in our country, in the US, our equivalent of AstraZeneca is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, because that's that um, adenovirus vector on the outside, benign, you know, cold virus that doesn't replicate. And then inside is the DNA, just like AstraZeneca um, producing the spike protein. And then we had two mRNA vaccines, um, you, uh, which was the Moderna formulation uh, and the Pfizer-BioNTech. And the Moderna one, interestingly, had been given four weeks apart. And when we say given, let's just remember that these clinical trials were in a hurry. They were, um, you know, trying to get out a vaccine that would save the world and and get uh, lives saved. And so what they did in the clinical trials was for the point of expediency, not exactly, you know, worked out, well thought out intervals for the best effectiveness. And then what we saw in this country, and it was really interesting to see this, is that Moderna has emerged, especially with the Delta variant, as a um, more effective vaccine than Pfizer. And uh, what I mean by that is there was cl- uh, data from the Mayo Clinic that there's less reinfection uh, with the Moderna versus Pfizer during the Delta wave. But importantly, there was a CDC analysis that compared Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson. So remember, differences, we had one dose so far with Johnson Johnson. You have at least two doses with AstraZeneca. And the Moderna was 93% effective against protecting against hospitalization with Delta, Pfizer 88%, and the one-dose Johnson & Johnson had gone to 71%. So that all led us to start thinking, wait, there's something about Moderna that's the best. What is it? 
two possible reasons. It's a higher dose. It's three times the dose, 100 micrograms instead of 30 micrograms, which is Pfizer. But the spacing came up. And we've really been thinking at our center at Ward 86 that it has a lot to do with even one week spacing may make a difference, meaning one week difference, having four weeks between doses. Because even if we think about hepatitis B, anything that we use, probably the minimum spacing we've ever used is a month, but certainly not three weeks. So we really started thinking that spacing matters and, and extending the spacing matters. Well, that's that's really interesting because there's been studies in the UK now showing that if you extend the Pfizer stuff out, uh, you know, out to six, 14 weeks that uh, you get a better response. And in Canada, I think that they're, they're going out to 16 weeks. So Actually, the Canada data was very interesting because just released two days ago from this podcast. And and um, you're absolutely right that they followed the UK, um, but there was kind of a little bit all over the place. Was it eight weeks? Was it six weeks? Was it 12 weeks? They did different intervals and they did a very nice analysis just two days ago where they showed that three weeks was the least effective in terms of vaccine effectiveness. And the six to eight weeks was kind of a golden spot in terms of maximum effectiveness. And then after that, it didn't matter. The 12 weeks was kind of the same as six to eight weeks. And do you think that, that, that we've been measuring all the right stuff in terms of the effect, effectiveness? Obviously, it's the number of people getting infected, but that, that can be quite difficult because it depends on the stage of your epidemic. You know, if you've, not got many, if you've got a very low level epidemic, you're not going to get very good. You know, your results are, are going to be different to if you've got lots of people infected. So we've been using these surrogates of antibodies uh, and T cells. Do you think that, th- that that's the best way that we've got at the moment of knowing uh, the, about the spacing to, to, to really hammer that down properly? You know, I so agree with you that, that we haven't gotten it right because mainly we've been just looking at antibodies and we all, as people especially who think about HIV a lot, know that um, antibodies are just the you know one aspect of the immune system and T-cell immunity matters so much, but there hasn't been great studies, um, as much at least as, as the antibody studies on measuring T-cell immunity. And then fundamentally what you just said is what matters, that do you get reinfected? That's a clinical outcome after a vaccine. And that will, of course, depend on how much circulating virus is around. Israel, to me, has been very interesting to watch this because they ended up getting a lot of circulating virus um, you know, after when the Delta wave came. And Fundamentally, they are a country in a way that was purely using one vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech, and they were very adherent to the three-week schedule. And when I saw the degree of reinfection in uh, Israel, that really hit me about the three weeks being likely not the best interval for a vaccine. At least your country and the U.S., we had mixed vaccines, so we can do some comparisons there. There's only one vaccine. Well, it's interesting because most of the health workers here got three-week gap with the the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Oh. And um, we're all now being offered a booster vaccine. I mean, I might just get onto that in a minute because this six-month period of the immunity waning seems to be, from that Israel data, a critical yes. period. Yeah, And I just wondered what you feel uh, whether there's any data that that, that period is is longer <laughs> uh, if you'd have had the vaccine spaced out longer, if you see what I mean, that we would have, that, that it wouldn't just, uh, after six months, it wouldn't, that your effectiveness would go down. But it, if you'd have had a spaced out vaccine, <laughs> but, you know, 
12 weeks or eight weeks, then you would have, your immune responses would have, would have persisted for a longer period of time. I really do think that if we'd spaced out the Pfizer-BioNTech, your immune response would have lasted at least the antibodies for longer. And that's based on two pieces of data. One was a nature analysis that looked at uh, three weeks versus 12 weeks spacing of Pfizer-BioNTech in the UK, um, which luckily they could directly compare those because you just explained that there was you know, all sorts of dosing intervals and there was a higher antibody response giving it at 12 weeks spacing versus three. And the second piece of data was really the Moderna um, in our here in the U.S., a Moderna versus, this was in JAMA, but a Moderna versus Pfizer comparison. And Moderna gave much higher antibody responses at four weeks than Pfizer-BioNTech gave you after three weeks, with the understanding that Moderna is a higher dose. So we should always put that in there. So, I, I yes, I, I the date, everything coming out of Israel, <laughs> to me, really is almost the pure experiment um, when we think about real life laboratory experiments that it's one vaccine and they were quite strictly adherent to three weeks whereas you in the UK we in the US have quite mixed data with different vaccines different intervals and that is where all the data is coming out that there's a more quick waning antibody response with three weeks. And I understand why people wanted to do the three weeks based on the, the original data that Pfizer had. But um, and others, there was a quote from a virologist who said that you should, you know, do them at this three or three week period because you might build a cohort of partially immunized individuals when there's a lot of circulating virus. And if they're only partially immunized, not only will they get COVID, uh, maybe not as bad, but that you might get resistant virus. But that we haven't seen that, have we, in people who've had one vaccine? vaccination generating resistant virus. Yes, you know, I I know that as infectious disease people we think about antibiotic drug selection um, and having that selective pressure on a on a bacteria by giving partial antibiotics, but that doesn't seem to be how the immune system works. Uh, thank goodness. So that like um, this this idea that you're giving partial immunity doesn't, it doesn't seem to, to make the virus select and, and develop mutations to evade that immunity. I mean, come on, we're 20 months into this pandemic. We've had a lot of transmission and we have not yet seen a variant that evades immunity, either natural or vaccine, um, because I don't, that's really, I think we're, we're, that's not how the immune system works. And um, you did mention the, the J&J vaccine, which is one dose. Do you think one dose is going to be enough? <laughs> I mean, people have been saying to me that actually we should be given two doses of that. Uh, I don't know. I, I, what's the data on that? Yeah, you know, there's two. Pe- I mean, one thing is that when um, I keep on thinking about the other vaccines in humanity <laughs> that we've given out, and there's really only one that we usually give as a one-dose vaccine series, which is the yellow fever. And then even if you go into a high yellow fever region, um, the recommendation is to give another dose of the vaccine. So it's very unusual to have a one-dose vaccine last for your entire lifetime. So that already doesn't have the precedent to be working as one dose. And then two pieces of data came out recently about Johnson & Johnson. The comparison analysis I just told you about from the CDC that really compared Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson Johnson, protection against hospitalization, which is that's, that's what matters in the sense that um, it's why we developed a vaccine for COVID uh, because it causes severe disease and, and 71% protection with the one dose Johnson Johnson compared to 93% protection with Moderna. The FDA meeting is this week to recommend a second dose after Johnson Johnson. I think with that data, that's really gonna fly. And then the second is data from the company itself 
showing, of course, increased antibodies and T cell responses with the second dose. But I, I, that's, to me, less meaningful than, than clinical data. Okay, so, uh, well, we'll wait and see what the FDA decide and how all that pans out, yeah. Uh, but we have to follow the data, and Tony Fauci said that all along, follow the data and let's, uh, let's see where it takes us. Now, I wanted to ask you something that is, when you look at different countries, they're all doing different things. So you've had a first vaccine, or you've had a second vaccine, uh, and you're due for your third, uh, and in between, you get COVID. You actually get COVID. You may be mild or whatever else, but you're diagnosed. Uh, so if you've had a first vaccine and you get COVID, when do you get your second vaccine? Do you get it at the, you know, at the, at the due time, independent of when you had COVID? Or do you have to wait a certain period of time after COVID? And I ask this because in Greece, I think it's six months. And in the UK, they say as soon as after. I've heard people say one month. I don't quite know when uh, you should advise people to get either their second dose or if they've had COVID after their second dose, their third dose, their booster. You know, I, I, when I would advise six months after the COVID. And the reason is, you know, I keep on going back to this paper that um, Stanley Plotkin wrote in Journal of Infectious Disease in January of 2021, where he was urging the U.S. to adopt the strategy that the U.K. had adopted, which was to save more lives, give the first dose first. And, but because he's like premier vaccinologist, <laughs> he really went through the data on why a spacing of zero, one, and six months um, for, for example, hepatitis B vaccine, why that came about and, um, and, and really explain that the, the, the priming that occurs, there is a really a benefit for spacing out that third dose. And, I, I would refer people to that paper because I really understood a lot after that. And it, it, so it made me think that, you know, what's an exposure or a COVID infection? It's like your, it's like a vaccine, um, second vaccine. So if you get your first uh, vaccine, you get COVID and then you're, it's due for your second vaccine, which would be the third time that you're exposed to immune antigens uh, to give to allow yourself to build an immune response against COVID. I would, I would literally, I, I would, my idea is that we should go, because of Dr. Plotkin, we should go to six months for that, six months after the, um, the original first COVID shot. And I keep on thinking about hepatitis B. So that's what I advise, because if we give it too soon, I think we may get into this issue that we don't get the great immunogenicity and you can get more side effects. Well, that, that's really interesting. Uh, and I, I, I wonder whether or not people start adopting a, a rational approach to this. But at the moment, as I said, it seems to vary country to country. It's hodgepodge. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff we've got to deal with because that we dealt with and it's been difficult. We have to deal with a bit more going forward. And one of the things that we have to deal with is how we deal with what what's called, it's quite nice, this mix and match, where... Um, so can you mix the different vaccines and, and elicit a better, stronger, longer lasting response than just using just the, just the uh, AstraZeneca, just the Pfizer, just the Moderna, just the J&J? I mean, should we be mixing and matching, Monica? What, what, what do you think? So say you've got all the vaccines available. I understand if there's only one thing available, you do what you can with that. But if you've got different ones available, what should the policy be? You know, I think it's really data from the UK that really impressed me with this um, putting a DNA 
adenovirus vector, <laughs> um, which was the AstraZeneca, uh, then putting that, I guess that would be called mixing later, with a Pfizer um, mRNA vaccine and having and showing that increased immunogenicity of that um, strategy of actually mixing those two. And the Canada um, adopted that quite quickly, such that after they saw the UK data, when they would they would quite standardly mix them. And I've been watching them um, in the Delta variant surge, and at least in terms of hospitalizations, they still have a lot of cases. I don't think that's completely reflective of failure at all. Um, it's it's really the hospitalizations that they are um, managing. So I, I think that really makes sense to mix them. I, I don't know what it is magically about, you know, that mixture that seems to have increased immunogenicity. I will say that a lot of people have been doing this off the cuff in the United States with the Johnson & Johnson because the FDA meeting is this week. This is October 12th. So it took quite a long time to have this FDA meeting for Johnson & Johnson. So a lot of people have given themselves an mRNA vaccine. They, we have a massive, uh, not good NHS system like you do. So you could go to a pharmacy and get whatever you want. Okay, so that's interesting because there've been some other. I, I saw some other data from Spain and uh, Germany suggesting the same thing that there's better immunogenicity. Do you think there's this because the immune system is just looking at different things for the two vaccine? But I know that it's generating anti spike, but there are other things involved uh, that we, we've not look, quite sorted out. Yes, but I did look at the. I was actually really interested in this. So once I looked at the formulation of the what's the spike, the genetic material in a Johnson & Johnson AstraZeneca and the Pfizer and the Moderna, and they're not exactly the same span of spike protein that you code for. So, um, you know, there's different parts of the spike protein. So presumably what's happening is you get different antigens that your immune system is exposed to and you get a broader response um, because, you know, Moderna is, uh, sorry, that Pfizer is, is different than the AstraZeneca and you get, you see more of the virus in a way. Yeah, yeah, well, it's it'll be really interesting in those countries that have access to whichever vaccine they, you know, they've got at least two different types of vaccine that they'll mix and match. And obviously for everybody else where it's, uh, you know, it's still uh, very difficult in many, many countries to get, uh, access to vaccines, then, uh, then, then mixing and matching may not be possible. One, One thing, thing I do want to say is the WHO, you know, which is who has been extremely strongly advocating for, as they should, because they are here to represent the planet, they have been really strongly recommending that um, a third dose is not given to rich countries until first and, and, and even second doses are given to those in low-income countries. But they did put out their SAGE recommendations just the other day and indicated that Sinovac and Sinopharm, um, which are the whole inactivated virion vaccines from China, those are the vaccines that they most recommend one more dose after with another mixed vaccine, an mRNA vaccine. So I think those two vaccines are the ones they have concern about and requiring a booster. Requiring a booster. Okay. So look, you know, there have been some complications with the AstraZeneca, uh, with the thrombosis, etc. If you got a, a severe reaction with AstraZeneca, would you then say to people, you shouldn't have it a second dose of any vaccine? Or would you then say, look, there's been no, no, no such uh, side effects shown with the mRNA, you should have mRNA as your second dose? 
Um, yes, I would say the latter. Um, you should have mRNA as your second dose because what I've been intrigued by is how different the adverse effects are between the mRNA vaccines and the DNA adenovirus vaccines. They're, they're very generally extremely safe. I think that's that's the kind of amazing part when people are concerned about their safety. We've given out more than 6 billion doses of these vaccines worldwide in the largest mass vaccination campaign in human history. And, um, you know, they're really very safe, but there are very specific adverse effects uh, associated with each of them. There's the clots with the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, and then there's the mild myocarditis episodes with the mRNA vaccines. And those are the two that come out, but they're very distinctive. Johnson Johnson doesn't give myocarditis and mRNA vaccines don't seem to cause clots. So it seems like if you get a, a side effect from one, you can give the other with impunity because um, you won't have overlapping side effects. So just finishing now on these side effects with the mix and match, there was this data again from the UK where they, when they mixed and matched, they got a few more uh, side effects than if you just gave them the same and, and there was a theory that this was because these were given um, uh, um, at, at a different interval um, they were given four weeks uh, and when when the Germans did the same and and the French they they, they they gave them nine or ten weeks apart and they didn't see this so again <laughs> this interval uh, between mixing and matching yeah maybe that's uh, <laughs> Maybe, Maybe that's, that's not only the trick for effectiveness, but what you just said, I think, is tremendously important about the question of safety. Um, because if you could both increase the effectiveness and minimize adverse effects by giving a longer interval, you have a huge win. And I will tell you that um, in this country, the U.S., we've had more vaccine hesitancy. Um, and part of it has been around... Uh, this question of do the young need the vaccine? Do 12 to 15 olds need the vaccine? And I know this is a big debate everywhere. Um, but if, if you know, I, I, I will just say a personal anecdote. I have a 13-year-old and I extended the duration of, um, uh, he was only qualified for an mRNA vaccine. And I extended the duration to seven weeks between doses for him because by this time I'd seen enough of the data that increased immunogenicity and I also wanted to maximize safety. And I feel very happy about that decision. Well, that's, yeah, it's really intriguing. And, I, I, you know, we're going to find out, I hope, because there's so much research going on. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Monica Gandhi, who's a, a professor of infectious disease uh, in San Francisco in the USA about all things COVID, which this time was uh, a uh, the intervals between COVID vaccines and mixing and matching. And if you want to um, hear more about how you manage, clinically manage COVID, we've got a, uh, a whole webinar on, on, a, on a clinical management program on the 16th of November that Monica has been helped developed. So thanks for that, Monica. And we look forward to seeing you uh, in the middle of November on that. Thank so, you so much. Great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for this. And this has been uh, Monica Gandhi and Anton Posniak on Science and Society podcast, All Things COVID. And we look forward to the next podcast coming soon. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Make sure to check out the notes for any references during the podcast. You can learn more about virology education and our other programs at www.academicmedicaleducation.com. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.